True Multifamily is an On Air Brands production and a proud member of the On Air Brands Network. Hey there, True Multifamily listeners. Justin here. Want to make sure you know about our website, truemultifamily.show, where you can stay all up to date, not only on this podcast, but all of our investment opportunities and other projects we have going on. Sign up for our newsletter at truemultifamily.show. See you there. This is True Multifamily, the show where we dive in on what really happens after closing a multifamily property. We're going to expose the role of asset manager. That's a person who has a responsibility of seeing the vision, executing the plan, and managing people, budgets, and timelines, all to deliver returns for our investors. These are the real struggles, the real victories, and the real stories of asset management. Welcome back to another episode of True Multifamily. I'm your host, Justin Fraser, here today with Lisa Hilton. Lisa, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I'm excited to hear from you, excited to speak to another podcast host. Uh, It's always fun to interview uh, podcast hosts. Before we go anywhere, tell our audience about your podcast. So as soon as they're done listening to this episode, they can go listen to your podcast. Tell us about that a little bit. Yeah, totally. So my podcast is the Level Up REI podcast. I've had it now for a little over a year. We feature a lot of education for passive investors. Um, so I do have on my show many syndicators, as well as you know people who are doing self-directed IRAs, all of the vendors in that space. Um, to provide opportunities for passive investors to um, invest in real estate, to find the money to do so, as well as how to think about looking at deals and you know do, doing due diligence on operators, as well as doing due diligence on markets and investment, different asset classes as well. Uh, really good stuff. Um, so guys, check out, make sure you check out the Level Up REI podcast for sure. Um, Lisa, we're going to do a quick, give us a quick bio background on you. And then I really want to dig in on your expertise, which is in evaluating funds, evaluating opportunities and sure. places to, to put money. So let's let's dig right in. Tell us a bit about yourself. Yeah. So I am the founder of LisaHilton.com, which is a real estate investment firm that focuses on providing opportunities for business owners, entrepreneurs and busy professionals to invest in tax efficient real estate investments. Um, and this was birthed out of my own personal journey as being a busy you know, professional in the accounting and finance space um, and seeing the need that people have in that space to invest in real estate. And they just don't have the time. They live in these very expensive, city, expensive cities on the coast, New York, Los Angeles, et cetera, or Chicago, inland cities as well. And they want to invest in real estate. They just don't have the time or capacity. And that's where my business was born out of being able to provide the opportunities for them to invest in real estate. My first question for you is, how do you find these people, right? I've got deals. How do I find someone with money? Tell us about that. (laughs) You know, it's a process. Um, I would say to people, a couple things that they need to think about is like, you know, first I started with my own personal network of people that I knew in my network that were interested or maybe not even interested because you never know who might be. So, you know, I just sort of reach out to my network and sort of say, hey, listen, this is what I'm doing. Um, You know, are you interested or do you know other people that are? So that helps, you know, in terms of setting the foundation. Number two, having building the thought leadership platform attracts. It does take time to attract and get um, traction. But uh, I think one of the biggest things is consistency. A lot of people are just not consistent in terms of 
posting and sharing their podcasts or even the podcasts that they've been on, um, showing up with articles and, you know, coming from a place of how they can serve um, and thinking about stepping in the shoes of that person and being like, okay, like what are some of the questions that they might have? And then sort of thinking about what kind of content you could create that would quote unquote answer those questions and ultimately attract them to come to you. Uh, yeah. So it's not a magic pill, but it's definitely, you know, getting out there and building, building your brand and building what it is that you're trying to create. So I think that's what's most important. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, I scrolling through your website, I see the phrase passive investing, passive income all over the place. And so I'm, I'm assuming yeah. that that's sort of your target, right? You, you built your site around people who are popping that term into Google. And then now you're able to take them sort of through this funnel of raising, you know, getting their interests, evaluating them and seeing if, if they truly want passive income or passive right. investing, you're now providing that opportunity for them. Is that? Yeah. Is that you know, I, yeah, definitely. And connected to that, you know, one of the things I think a lot of syndicators don't necessarily have in place or even people who are on the operation side is like the, how much nurturing that is, is involved in building and maintaining the relationship. Um, I think, you know, it's one thing to, you know, just get out there and talk one or two times, but like you need to continue to maintain that relationship. And that's where like, you know, having someone that is focused on that is like so important. Either you're going to do it or someone else is going to do it. So that way, when you are now in a position with a deal, you're not worried about how you're going to get money to fund it um, and to fund your deals. I think the second part of this as well is like providing that investor experience. So once again, it comes down to who you, who are you, um, who's your investor profile? Like if your investor profile, you know, um, for me, a lot of my investors are professionals. So they're used to seeing like emails, updates, and they're okay with seeing P&Ls and stuff like that because they come from the finance and accounting world. So they're okay and they want to see that kind of stuff. If you don't have those kinds of investors, then maybe you don't need to provide that. But like if, you know, in my case, that's something that's important to my investors. So like knowing that when I'm out there looking and talking to operators, I'm asking them like, what is your communication style? Can you show me like some of the ways in which you're communicating to your investor base now? Because that can help me to see, okay, is this someone that would be good for me to partner with, with my investors, because I know what they're expecting to see in terms of communication monthly and quarterly as well. Tell us a bit about that. What are some red flags when you're talking to a potential operator, someone that you might want to partner with? Um, what are some things that they might say or do that would sort of throw up a, a flag and, and make you not want to partner with them? Yeah. So a couple of things for me. One, I like to see alignment in terms of the deal they're presenting and what they've done in the past. Mm. And if they are doing something new, like who are they adding to their team to bring that experience to lessen the execution risk for investors capital? Um, I think that is the biggest thing that is is out there. Like I don't knock newbies because I think we all have to start from somewhere, but I think it's really important as you're starting to make sure that you partner with experienced partners to help you along the journey because you are getting people's hard-earned cash. 
So you want to be able to return it to them. And, you know, yeah, you want to be able to return it to them. I think that's the biggest thing for me. Secondly, is I also look at like, okay, if I get a deal that is just showing like they are doing a refi, um, like I want to understand, suppose that refi doesn't work out. Like, what is your next plan? You know, and I've I've listened to syndicators who tell me, you know, well, they they're just going to see what happens. And like, you know, um, this is like they've never like sort of done it before. So they're just going to see what happens. And it's just like, you know, OK, great. You're probably not my guy, my person because like it's just not going to work for me. So you you can find someone else who is going to be OK with that you know, also returns. So when we're talking about the preferred return, I know it's very controversial. I know a lot of people don't like it. A lot of operators would like for it to go away. Um, However, um, I think that for me, when I look at a class B or an A, a B plus or B minus asset, I expect preferred returns on those assets because they're cash flowing. They don't, they, the plan doesn't include like heavy duty value add. So it's like, okay, like, you know, definitely provide a preferred return. Um, However, like if you're going to be doing deep value add, I could see where, you know, not having that preferred return ticking on you can be beneficial because of the situation you're going into a deeper value add. That said, just that, that has been my stance. And I recently got a new deal last night that is a deep value add and they're doing a preferred return. And I was like, okay. Got it. Well, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we've done a mix on our deals as well. Um, Sometimes, you know, you can put a pref in there, um, but actually set the expectation that, yeah, even though I'm giving a preferred return here in year one, you may not actually receive it until year two. That's that's something we've done where it's like, you're still going to accrue it. We're just going to owe it right. to you in year two. Um, one other thing to that I've seen is that people will overraise so that they can hit their prep for those heavy value adds as well. Yeah, that yeah. too, that too, that too. <laughs> <laughs> All these different things, you know. Um, I think one other thing that I look at as well is two things. One is like, uh, three things. Geez. Um, one is the income projection. So assumptions like when, what are the rent growth assumptions on this particular property? And for a lot of passive investors, they might not like, they might not know what to really do with that. But what I do is I go and I Google that city on, on the internet and sort of see, you know, like, is there like, what is the organic um, news about this town? Like, are they getting new businesses? Are people moving to this? location is population growing does it make sense for the kind of projections because let's face it passive investors don't have co-star and they don't have axiom and all these places like they don't so like they just have to use what they have to then be able to say okay does this make sense um and then expenses as well like um i think this part was it isn't really necessarily passive investors per se, but like, you know, just looking at like what the expense projections are, like from my perspective and sort of seeing, okay, you can see what the broker is projecting the expenses on the performa compared to like what they plan to do with the property. And then just sort of seeing, does it really make sense in terms of like decreasing and, you know, asking questions about that. And then lastly is the cap rate. So I don't, I don't really focus on one particular metric um, solely, but definitely with the cap rate, I want to see that cap rate is going up. 
um, in terms of the exit. So, you know, as opposed to it going down and just making sure that there's a healthy growth in the cap rate over the whole period. So, yeah. Yeah, Matt, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so what, um, let me see how I can ask this question. You are, you, you've got a great, you know, track record. You've got a huge amount of investors that have come through your website that you're nurturing. Mm -hmm. Um, What is that process like to, to convince them that you found this deal or this operator and that they should be putting their money with you into this? Are you raising it in a fund? Is it blind? Do they know who the operator Mm -hmm. is? Talk us through some of the specifics. Yeah, you know, so the the one that I did in 2019, um, it was a single asset um, fund. So it's just pretty much special purpose vehicle. So entity created to invest in um, the portfolio of two assets. So investors knew what they were investing in. It was pretty clear and straightforward. Uh, we did not negotiate at that time, you know, preferential terms for our fund, primarily because we were just getting started and we didn't, like at the time myself and the other people who were raising with me didn't really know. Um, since then, we know a lot more. Uh, but yeah, so as a result, we actually had to adjust the returns at our fund level um, for our investors. Uh, that deal has now gone full cycle. So we held it for 21 months. It's now sold investors at the main level. The IRR was like 21, uh, 25%. And then at our level was approximately 20%. Um, and then because I invested in both directly with the main as well as through my own entity, uh, the cash flow differential each month was like 25 bucks. So really and truly, like it, for investors, it was still a good deal, even though we had to adjust our returns a little bit down. Um, so that way we could be able to cover the cost of creating our entity. Um, but in that case, you know, typically 500K is like the minimum in terms of what you want to launch a fund of fund at. These days, as I continue to build out my business, yes, I continue to try to do more of those, um, try to keep the returns the same, and then be able to negotiate with the operators for better terms for a larger check size. So that way they don't have to be raising as much money and they don't have to be dealing with as many investors. Um, They're just getting one check and then they're good to go. So that sort of helps both parties. And then one of the other things that I really like about the fund space because of my experience in this space is like seeing the need out there that investors want to um, be able to diversify their 50K or their 100K, you know, so being able to provide vehicles that enable them to invest in that vehicle into known assets that they're going to be investing in. So believe it or not, there is a lot of deals out there that are closing and a lot of these deals do need capital. Um, so like being able to partner with good operators and sort of say, Hey, you know, I like your deal. I like your deal and putting together an entity that sort of gives investors the opportunity to maybe invest in more than one deal as opposed to just one. I want to talk through some specifics here. So let's, let's, or maybe a hypothetical. Mm -hmm. I, you know, you and you and me meet today. Great. Um, Mm -hmm. let's say next month, two months, three months from now, um, Mm -hmm. I have a deal. And we come across it and it it's going to be a pretty heavy capital raise. And let's say I'm not feeling confident about my network uh, to, to raise the money. How do, how are you looking at the deal? What information do I need to provide you? What are you, how are you vetting me? How are you vetting the deal? Let's, let's talk through that a little bit. So number one, similar to like how you would do 
like regular passive investors, I like to meet sponsors before they have deals because I like to get to know them and get to know who they are as a person and like how they approach their deals and see some examples of the deals that they've done in the past, um, you know, and ideally have taken full cycle. Um, so that way I can, as well as that communication piece. Now, when they have that deal is like being able to see what they're underwriting. So they, they being able to send through the underwriting, um, what they're projecting, what are some of the assumptions connected to that. So that way I can then take a look at it as long as well as like their preliminary offering memorandum. So that way I can take a look at it and sort of see, okay, this is their plan um, and where it's located. And then what I'll do is I'll look to see number one, where's this asset located? Is this a location that I feel comfortable investing in? I always think about it from my perspective. Mm -hmm. Would I, would I put my own money into this deal? Um, and then I also then think about, okay, knowing my investor base and what they have told me they are interested in investing in, is this something that I think they would be interested in? Um, and then from that, I also then look, so I'm looking at the location from the location. I look at the business plan from the business plan. I then get into the underwriting to then look to see like, okay, what are the assumptions this underwriting makes sense to then ask additional questions that I have to the operator to say, okay, like, you know, whatever assumptions they're making to get comfortable and then to sort of go from there. Um, but at that point, by the time I see the deal, like I don't, I'm not worried about track record and, and that kind of stuff and communication style because yep. I've already had that, those conversations before and I'm already good. So if, if I bring you a deal today, it's too late because you haven't vetted me. We haven't built a relationship and, and you haven't asked me those preliminary questions. Yeah, I think it's it's good to, you know, start the conversations early and, you know, reach out to people and like you never know, like you just never know with this real estate business. Of course, <laughs> it's it's a really small world that we're playing in, yes. um, even though there's a lot of people in it, you know, the the ones actually doing and producing uh, rise to the top and, and yeah. you, you come across them pretty often. Um, so what sort of what makes a good deal for you? Yeah. Uh, return, you know. You, you, you touched on a pref, but t give us some numbers that we should be. Yeah, yeah, for. yeah. So for me specifically, like my kind of dream deals, um, I would say like I love class B. That's what right. I love. Class B multifamily. Um, and I like seeing a property that has healthy cash and appreciation. So what that means is I look to see when you sum up the amount of cash flow that you get during the whole period. And then the cash flow at the end as a result of the sale, that they're either equal or maybe even the cash flow is a little bit more. Okay. Um, I will do some that it's the other way around too, where the appreciation is a little bit higher. Um, but personally, like if I'm when I'm investing my own money specifically, that's what I like right now. Um, and then I also like um, from there. So the, on the multifamily space, that's what I like. Um, I don't do a whole lot of deep value ads. I see them. I think that for me, it's really getting comfortable with the operators, to be honest, yeah. um, because that's like, you're, you know, it, it's a different risk profile and just continuing to get to know them and sort of get to that place where I feel comfortable um, making an investment on the deep value ad side. So, yeah. How have, I'm going to push you a little further for a number. Okay. How have your return projections um, or expectations changed since, you know, let's say since COVID started? 
and now we're recording this halfway through 2021. Yeah. You know, it used to be we could throw out, you know, that that number that you said of cash flow plus the return at the end. Mm-hmm. You know, at one point people were talking about 20% or better. You mentioned a 20 IRR before. How has that changed uh, recently and what are you looking for? Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, really good question. So for the B and B plus, especially the B plus arena, um, I've definitely seen a compression in terms of returns. So preferred returns somewhere between six to seven percent, whereas in the past it was like eight, sometimes even a nine percent preferred return. So definitely having a lot of those conversations with investors to sort of say, hey, like if you want to be in some of these nicer deals, this is what the returns look like right now. Um, And then, you know, on top of that, you know, the first year to two years, um, even though the preferred return is like six or seven, the actual return cash on cash return in those first two years are sometimes four percent or even five percent. So they're catching up in year three, year four. So that's something that I would say before COVID, I did not see a lot. Um, I do see a lot more of that now, you know, being able to catch up a little bit later, um, which is a part of the investing, what we're dealing with now. Also, IRRs are lower. So like you're talking about 13%. Um, 13 to maybe even 15%. This is in the class B plus space, B, B plus. Um, These are nicer assets per se. Uh, And then, you know, if you're willing to go with B minus, Cs, like I think I've sort of seen them still, they're a little bit lower than what they were in the past, but they're definitely higher than the B plus assets. So those ones will still show like an 8%. Um, and, you know, mm-hmm. you know, a 9%, sometimes even a 10% cash on cash and like getting into 11%, even in like year three, four and five. So they're out there, <laughs> whether, whether they actually materialize, that's um, something different. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, well, that leads me to a great transition, which is what happens when they don't materialize mm-hmm. and they don't produce yeah. and you've inserted yourself between the operator and the investor and you're yeah. saying, Hey, trust me, I vetted yeah. these guys. They're going to, this is their projections. How do you handle it uh, when, when they don't? Yes. Communication, communication and transparency. I think that um, when you sit on bad news, it just gets worse. Mm-hmm. So I think the sooner you know that something is going to happen, you communicate it then, as opposed to waiting until the end of the quarter. Even the deal that sold, the one that had IRR of 20%, like the cash on cash returns, though, were a little bit lower than what we projected going into this particular deal. But now, like, so you just have, you communicate with investors, you sort of let them know, hey, this is what is going on. And like, this is where we're ending up. So what sort of metrics are you looking for? How are you evaluating the health of these projects uh, as they go on? Yeah, so a couple of things that I do is, number one, I look at the NOI. So when they provide the reports, typically on a quarterly basis, I'll look to see how is the NOI trending um, month after month. Uh, And then that can sort of tell me, you know, the health of this particular property. That's the first thing. The second thing connected to that deep digging deeper, you can, I also look at the income. So how is the income, the gross, the money that they're picking up at the top? 
that that income effective gross income how is that changing month after month compared to what is actually being written in the the words of the update um, and the same thing, looking at the expenses, luckily with these PL reports that are sent to me, at least with the operators I invest with, they show they're like T12s. So like they actually show all the different months. So you can easily and quickly see how things are changing month over month to be able to see, okay, does that make sense? Then the other thing that I look at is like when going into this deal, they'll have the offering memorandum and they'll show what they're projecting to be the cash flows in year one, year two, year three. So when you get into year two and year threes and the different years, um, if they're anticipating a different cash flow for those years, like has the cash flow actually changed in year two and year three? And if it hasn't, have they spoken about why it hasn't changed or why it is changing to talk about, to give transparency in terms of what's going on? I think that people, when people are investing, they know that they're taking a risk. Like they know that they're not investing in perfection, right? But they expect that like, if you know that something is going differently than what you've planned, that you're going to talk about it and just sort of say, hey, this is what's happening and this is what I'm doing about it. Um, and I think that that is when when you provide that level of transparency to investors, you will then have more investors in the future because they feel that they can trust you because you're going to tell them like what is going on. Um, and I think that's what's important. So Absolutely. that's how I approach it. And, and that's such a great lesson for anyone, whether you're on the investor side, to make sure you're asking that question and to ask for reports. And if you're an operator listening to this, to make sure that you are being open and transparent and sharing that information um, to make sure that, that you, you listen, the, exactly what you said, the bad news, every time it sits, it just gets worse. It never gets better. Yeah, it never People, gets better. They want to know, you know, you can be embarrassed. And I've made this mistake my, myself on, on other projects that we've ran. It's like, oh, I held on to some bad information. It always gets worse. If I'm mm-hmm. upfront, when I'm upfront and I, I speak about it and I talk about the plans and, and this happened, but we're doing A, B, and C to, to try to turn it around, then investors are usually like, hey, Great. Let, keep, keep me updated. Let me know what you do, what you're up to Yeah. when it goes, you know, two or three months and they haven't heard about this one thing and, and you're just sort of crossing your fingers and hoping it's going to get better. That's usually when you get into trouble. Exactly. Yeah. So Lisa, this has been an excellent interview. I, I'm so grateful that you came on the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, before we go, I know you have an ebook that yes. uh, you just wrote. So tell our audience about that. And then of course, make sure you hit uh, the podcast again and anything, anything else you think our audience should know about you. Yeah, so I just created an ebook. It's um, it's called Passively Investing in Real Estate Funds, primarily because I felt like a lot of people didn't really know a lot about the process from a passive perspective. Um, you know, granted, this show does attract a lot of more active real estate syndicators. Um, so to the extent that people want to take a look at it from a passive perspective in terms of what is being offered out there for passive investors, by all means, you're welcome to do so. Um, so yeah, so that's it. But in terms of getting a hold of me, the best place to go one-stop shop for both the ebook as well as just um, my podcast, my blogs, all my offerings is lisahilton.com. And that's Hilton with a Y, just like the hotel, only thing with a Y. And then the ebook is lisahilton.com forward slash funds. So that's F-U-N-D-S. Awesome. Well, Lisa, before we go, I have one final question I ask all my guests. 
And mm-hmm. that is someone approaches you and says, Lisa, I want to get into multifamily investing. What is yes. your true multifamily tip for them? Yeah. Oh my goodness. So a couple things. The first thing I would ask them is, do you want to get in as an active investor or a passive investor? And I'll give the answer for both. So if they say to me that they want to get in as an active investor, the first thing I'll say to them next is what role do you feel that you could play? So I'll tell them about the different roles, acquisitions, underwriting, and investor relations, and ask them to think about, hey, you know, what do you already know? And based on your experience, what could you draw from your experience that could add value to one of these roles? Um, And then from there, being able to hone in on that role and get really good at, you know, at asset managing or get really good at underwriting or get really good at talking to brokers and building those relationships or the same thing for investors. So that's what I would say. I think a lot of people starting out try to do everything and then they quickly realize Mm -hmm. that syndication is a team sport. Uh, team sport. So they then need to think about like, what is their superpower, what they could, what they can bring to the table and help other people. Um, And that will enable them to move faster, quicker, and any day, all day, all the time. So that's the first thing on that side. And then on the other side for passively, if they're like, you know what, passive is my, is my jam. And this is where I want to go. I think the first thing is getting out there and talking to sponsors. Um, you know, you don't need to invest, but you do need to get a hold of, you need to get educated. So a part of that education is looking at deals. Um, you know, listening to podcasts like this, reading books. One of my favorite books is the hands off investor by Brian Burke. Mm, Great one. Um, yeah, really good book for people who want to invest passively, you know, so that way they protect their hard earned cash that they're working at their W2 or in their business for, um, and then yeah, networking with sponsors, you don't need to invest in the first deal that you see, but you know, getting all these deals, taking a look at them. And with time, you start to start to see the deals. Oh, I like this one. I like how this person talks with me. I like the communication style. I like how they manage the deal. And then just network with other investors to, you know, get build your own referral, natural, organic referral network. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Um, so there you go. So yeah, that's what I'd say. Excellent. Super detailed and really love that answer. Thank you so much, guys. Make sure you check out the Level Up REI podcast. Check out Lisa's website. And uh, hey, if you're looking to passively invest, download her ebook and uh, and go check everything out that she has going on. Lisa, thank you again for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. We'll see you soon. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to another episode. Check out our website at truemultifamily.show. And if you have an amazing story to tell, share it on our Facebook community and you might just be the next guest on the show. We're also on all other social networks. Just search True Multifamily.